All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1, where we'll be spending some time this morning. Um, my name is Reggie. If I don't know you guys, I'd love the opportunity to meet you afterwards. Um, but uh, we'll be looking at, uh, like I said, the first chapter of Acts this morning. And so um, I'm going to pray for us. And then just a second, we'll, uh, we'll start reading through God's Word here. But let's pray. God, thank you again for the opportunity to be gathered in your presence this morning. God, thank you for the reminder just seconds ago that you're a God who takes away our guilt because of the great work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So God, this morning as we're together and we dive into your, your word and we're gathered around Jesus and the fact that he has done something for us and created this great thing called the church, God, we pray that you would be amongst our midst just as you've promised you would be as we gather together. God, we pray that we would hear from you that you would work in our hearts and minds to draw us close to you, to draw us to repentance, if that's where we need to be this morning. God, I pray over the next few minutes as I have the privilege and the responsibility of proclaiming your word, God, that you would simply use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, God, that Jesus might be lifted high and that I might be made small. God, I recognize that my words are of little significance, but God, your words are of great significance. And so, God, let us hear from you. God, we pray that we would be changed because of it. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, we're going to read through the first 11 verses. The first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach till the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Over the next few weeks at the well, we're actually going to spend five weeks looking at the first chapter of Acts here and specifically focusing in on Acts chapter 1, verse 8 sort of jumping off from there in a couple of directions. This morning, I'm going to set the stage for that, and um, we'll move on from here over the next few weeks, and we're going to talk about some things, about how the Holy Spirit empowers His church for mission. We're going to talk about what it means to be a witness, as Jesus just told His apostles that they would be in Acts chapter 1-8. We're going to take a look at what it looks like when the gospel goes forth, like Jesus told His disciples it would happen. And we're going to take a look at, on a broader scale, what it means to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you'll hear a couple of other voices over the next couple of weeks as well. Um, 
as we, as we go through this. But this morning, like I said, we're going to focus in just briefly on, on the beginning of what Jesus says to the disciples here, and specifically that question that the disciples asked Jesus. It's no secret if you've been around the well for the past couple of months, it's been a time of great transition. There are lots of stuff going on. There's been great ups and, and big downs, right? We've seen um, new babies be born just in the last week and a half or so. The other night, I had the, uh, Amy and I both had the opportunity to hold um, Jeremy and Melody's new twins, Sadie and Nora, and uh, it's a time of great excitement to see such um, new little babies in the world, and we've had times of sadness just this week as well as you guys know that Abby McPherson has been in the hospital for a while, and there's no real clue as to what's going on with her. Just this week, we saw members of the well move away to a different part of the country for, um, to begin medical residencies, and all these things are going on. People are moving. People are coming to the well. People are, have new jobs. There's just lots and lots going on. We've had marriages, which are awesome. Um, I think the most recent was Nathan and Elisa, which is great, something to celebrate. Woohoo! And right now, we know that there are like 10 ladies who are pregnant and waiting the birth of their children over the next few months. And that's awesome. It's awesome that God is at work, but there's a lot going on, right? There's a lot going on. We've experienced joys and pains, some of which I know about, some of which I don't know about, because you've experienced them yourself. And at the end of this summer, the well is going to enter into a new phase for us. We're potentially going to leave the space that we're in now and actually move to a situation where we have two spaces, a, a worship space that's different than this, and then, a, and then another downtown office space, multi-use facility um, that'll be used for a variety of things. And it, it's going to be a different time. There's lots going on. But it doesn't change who we are, right? We're still a church. We're still on mission for the gospel. And that's essentially the theme for the next few weeks as we talk about this. Every Christian on mission for the gospel as a part of gospel community. And so this morning, as we begin to move forward as a body of faith, despite all the changes that are going on, despite what changes may come, it's prudent for us to take a few weeks, like I said, and dive into the first chapter of Acts. And to remind ourselves collectively as a community, as individuals, and as family, what it is that Christ has called us to do, how he's going to empower us for that, and what it looks like when God starts doing those awesome things that he promised he would do. And so that leads us to the question of why the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts is the rest of the story, um, to steal a phrase from, from Paul Harvey. It's the rest of the story. It is, in essence, what happens after Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a death, was raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven. It's the rest of the story. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. There won't be any more new chapters written in our Bible, but we are, in essence, living the rest of the story now, right? It's why we're part of the Acts 29 network. It's uh, well, that's not why we're part of the Acts 29 network, but the Acts 29 network is essentially saying that same thing. We're writing the rest of the story, right? Acts chapter 29. It doesn't exist. We're living it. It's God calling us into his great story of what he's doing, using us as a church to accomplish his purposes. And so in a very real way, we're living the next chapters of Acts. Now, 
The 28 chapters of Acts were written by a guy named Luke. Luke was a physician. He also wrote, which we have lots of physicians among us, uh, some of which just left town, some of which uh, will be becoming physicians soon. But Luke was a physician. He's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Acts is the companion to the Gospel of Luke. If you want to know everything Luke wrote, right, he intended you to read both Luke and Acts, not one or the other. Um, originally, they went together, and, and, and now they're separated out into two books. Luke's immediate purpose in writing this was to help a man named Theophilus, who we heard his name just a second ago, understood, help him understand everything about what it was that Jesus did, what Jesus taught, what Jesus accomplished, and then what it looks like after Jesus was here, what the next steps are, and what's going on in the early church, the very early church. So as I mentioned, Luke is a physician. He's a traveling companion to Paul. In Acts chapter 16, Luke actually joins the story, right? So as he's writing Luke and he's writing up to Acts chapter 16, he's relying on witnesses and he's done lots of investigation. In Acts chapter 16, Luke actually jumps into the story. And you start to see Luke in other places in the New Testament. You see him pop up in the book of Colossians. You see him pop up in Philemon. And at the very end of Paul's life, when Paul is in a Roman jail cell awaiting death in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, and Luke alone is still here with me. Luke was probably not Jewish at all. He was probably a Gentile. And if that's the case, then he's the only Gentile author of the New Testament. So a little bit of information about Luke, right? But enough about Luke. I'm not here to talk about Luke. We're here to talk about Jesus, right? So, the book of Acts essentially picks up where the gospels stop. The gospels stop with Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension. Acts mentions that right here at the beginning, and then we go on from there. But what we've got to understand is that Jesus is all over this book. It's not the end. It's the continuation of what Jesus is going to continue to do here on earth. Jesus died on a cross. He was raised from the dead. Because of that, he paid our debt. He defeated death. He offers us his righteousness, and he offers us eternal life. And that's what he came to earth to do. That's what the incarnation was about. Hebrews 10, 12 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When Jesus said, It's finished, it was finished. The debt was paid. Our sins were covered, God's wrath was removed, and Satan was defeated. But Jesus wasn't finished with his ultimate purposes, right? He wasn't finished. Acts is about what Jesus continued and continues to do through his followers by his power, right? You with me? Everybody still good? Somebody nod ahead, right? All right, you're not asleep yet. Um, The clear implication of Acts is that now, now that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, he is not finished. He is not done with his work and with his teaching. He is not dead and he is not absent. He is alive and he is present as he empowers his church to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave to them. John Piper puts it this way, the incarnation of the Son of God is just the beginning of what Jesus came to do and teach. And the rest of what he came to do, he does now in this age until the time appointed by the Father 
for the consummation of all things. That is the point of the book of Acts, and that is why we exist as a church, and that is what this age is all about. The book of Acts is not just the acts of the apostles. It is the acts of the risen, living, enthroned Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is Luke's point. Jesus began his doing and teaching until he was taken up to heaven. Now he goes on completing his doing and teaching. He goes on building his church just like he said he would. Acts is the first record of that. We're living the rest of that, right? Put succinctly, in the Gospels, Jesus offered his life for the church. In Acts, Jesus offers his power to the church. In the Gospels, we see the seeds of the church first planted. In the book of Acts, we see those seeds sprout and flourish through the continuing work of Jesus in the lives of ordinary people that he's called to himself, set apart as a community for his purpose, and empowering them for the mission that he set them apart for. So why Acts, right? It brings me back to that question. Why are we looking at the book of Acts? Because Jesus is at work in his body to accomplish his purposes. Despite our ups and downs, despite who has to leave town for job reasons, for marriage reasons, for whatever reasons, despite whom God brings to the well to be a part of the membership of our body of faith, despite what next steps we take as a body of faith, despite where we worship, despite all of those things, Jesus is at work in his body to accomplish his purposes. And Acts introduces us to that very thing. And as the book of Acts clearly illustrates, like I said, that we'll focus in on over the next few weeks, every one of us as individuals that are members of a larger community are called to live a life on mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit for the gospel, just as Christ called us to do. Right? You guys with me? You good? This morning, in the next few minutes, we're going to focus in on the brief interaction that happens between Jesus and the disciples in the first chapter of Acts here. And I want you to understand that what happens in those first couple of verses when the disciples ask Jesus a question and Jesus responds is it's a major confrontation, right? It doesn't look like a fight. It's not an MMA fight or anything like that, but it's definitely about confrontation. And that's important for us to realize. I want you to understand that we as people, we don't like confrontation, right? We tend to shy away from, well, some people, some people like to argue and fight. Um, and that's okay, I guess. But generally, we as people don't like confrontation. We shy away from it. This week, I came back from vacation. We got home early in the week, and I went back to work on Wednesday. And my very first day back at work, I had a huge confrontation with somebody. Um, not in a bad way, just trying to figure things out. And um, it's just a part of life sometimes, confrontation. But we got to understand this about the gospel, right? We talk a lot about the gospel here at The Well. We talk about the gospel, we don't mean just how someone comes to be saved. We're talking about the overall message of Scripture that Jesus died for our sins, that he de defeated Satan, sin, and death, and provided a way for us to be right with God, and how that changes everything. 
And the overarching thing about the gospel that we've got to understand, or one overarching thing about the gospel that we've got to understand, is that the gospel is always about confrontation. It's about the truth of what Jesus did and how that changes everything, confronting our sin and our selfishness and our idols and our own kingdom building and all those kinds of things. And so that's essentially what we see happen here in a couple of verses in the first part of Acts. Look back with me at Acts verses 6 through 11 in chapter 1 here. Let me read it again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus has spent 40 days with the disciples after the resurrection. He's been appearing to them and talking to them. And verse 3, which I didn't just read, says that he's been talking to them about the kingdom. And so here they are. They're gathered together with Jesus. The disciples and Jesus are gathered together. Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven. And the disciples are sitting around talking and the disciples asked Jesus a simple question, or at least it appears to be simple. They say, Jesus, you've been talking about your kingdom, so will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a straightforward question, right? Jesus, are you going to uh, restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, no, I don't think it's straightforward at all. I think the question is loaded, and I'm actually surprised by it. This little question reveals quite a bit about the hearts of the disciples, and so much so that it's almost ridiculous. It shows us some very specific things, right? It shows us that the disciples were still looking for Jesus to do something different than what Jesus had been saying all along. They were still looking for Jesus to establish a political kingdom. It's very interesting that when they asked Jesus the question here, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They use the word restore. Why would they use the word restore? Right? It's because they were thinking about something that they already knew about. They were thinking about something along the lines of what David had. A kingdom of might and power and control that David was a great warrior and had a great army. And Israel was great when David was king. Jesus, are you here to do that? Jesus, when are you going to do that? When are you going to restore to us what David already had? But here's the thing. I don't think they just wanted a political kingdom. I think they wanted that kingdom to be restricted just to Israel. Right? They asked the question, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They wanted a kingdom that was restricted to the Jews. They wanted that kingdom to be restricted to Jerusalem. If you wanted to be a part of that kingdom, great. But you better go to Jerusalem to do it. Right? And what does Jesus do in the very next verses? Jesus, if it was me in that moment, and I'm obviously not Jesus. My wife will attest to that. 
after all that he's done and taught, they're missing it, right? And me in that moment, you can't tell I have red hair when I had hair. If it's me in that moment, I would have turned incredibly angry. You know what they say about redhead? This is a side note, right? You know what they say about redheaded people? We're either asleep or we're angry. Um, but in this moment, if I were Jesus, I would have been incredibly tempted to, you know, put them on blast and let them have him. That's not what Jesus does. He essentially confronts, right, confrontation. He confronts their misconceptions about his kingdom by giving them a purpose and a mission, telling them that they will be empowered for that mission, and he tells them that that mission is going to go well beyond the confines of Jerusalem, even to the ends of the earth. So disciples say, Jesus, when are you going to establish that kingdom like David had, where we're powerful, and we're out from under Rome, and I don't have to pay taxes anymore, and we're in charge, and we're the big dogs? And Jesus says, Guys, you got it all wrong. You don't understand anything about my kingdom. He doesn't say that. That's what I would have said. Who have you been listening to? Where have you been? Have you not heard me talking about my kingdom? Instead, Jesus confronts their misconceptions. He gives them a mission. And he says, your kingdom's not here. Your kingdom's not political. It's going to be powerful, but it's not going to be powerful the way you think it's going to be powerful. It's going to be powerful because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives to be witnesses for me to the ends of the earth. And so it becomes very obvious that the kingdom that Jesus is building is very different from the kingdom that the disciples wanted. It's very obvious that Jesus has a different purpose and a different mission for the kingdom than the disciples ever understood. And it's obvious that Jesus is going to be the power for that purpose and that mission. And we'll get into it in the coming weeks, but let me just draw out a couple of important truths here while we're talking about Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not a political kingdom like the disciples intended it to be. While one day Jesus will once again literally, physically reign over the earth, over a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth, his kingdom is not going to be ushered in by any political power, party, government, or elected official. Doesn't happen that way. It will be ushered in through the power of the Holy Spirit as Jesus accomplishes his purposes here on earth. Completely separate. The disciples hopefully got it when Jesus said, I'm going to empower you to be witnesses out there. Jesus' kingdom will not be ushered in by force and by law. It will be ushered in by power but as I said, not power as we think about it. Be ushered in by the power of the Holy Spirit as God empowers his people to accomplish his God's purposes here on earth until Jesus comes back. The kingdom of God is one of those things to which already exist. It exists in the hearts and lives of men as God has collected us together to be his church. And it's not fully realized yet. There, there will be a day when Jesus literally physically reigns on earth again that's not now but it's coming and god's kingdom exists now but it doesn't exist in a political sense it doesn't exist in a governmental sense it doesn't exist by force it exists by the power of the holy spirit setting people aside for god's purposes right you with me everybody good so i'm forced to step back in this moment and ask myself the question 
how did the disciples miss the obvious? Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days since he was raised from the dead. And yet the disciples missed the obvious. And maybe there are many answers to that question. I don't know. But I think we have to at least examine one potential answer to that question, and it's this. The questions asked by the disciples reveal that they are more interested in Jesus than seeing Jesus fulfill their expectations about what the kingdom looks like than in realizing Jesus' expectations. Their expectations demonstrate that they wanted something else. And essentially what they wanted was Jesus to build their kingdom in their way, and they didn't get it. And I think we have to stand back and say, what was it that made the disciples expect those different things? What was it that caused them to miss the point? What was it that got in the way of their understanding of what Jesus was all about? And I think the question is this. We have to sit back and say, does the question that the disciples asked Jesus reveal anything about the idols of their heart? Let me draw that out just a little bit. Maybe... The disciples idolized and inordinately worshipped Israel's past glory. Maybe one of the idols of their heart was a desire for power and prominence and precedent. Maybe one of the idols of their heart was comfort because it was not comfortable to be under Roman authority. Maybe, maybe not. I could be wrong here. But I think as we move forward in understanding what God has called us to do and be as a church, we have to take a moment and we have to step back and we have to say, are there any idols in my heart that are causing me to miss what Jesus is saying? Are there any idols in my heart that are causing me to miss the point? You see, an idol is anything that I look at and I say, if I have that, my life has value. If I have that thing, then I have identity. I have an identity. If I have that job, then I mean something. If I have that person as my spouse, then I have an identity. If I have that money, if I have that whatever it might be, that degree, whatever it might be, that title, that all of a sudden I have value and I have an identity. An idol is anything that we turn into an ultimate thing. It can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, but anything that turns into an ultimate thing becomes an idol for us. So in this moment, as Jesus and the disciples are standing there and the disciples ask Jesus that question, were there idols in their heart that forced them, that caused them to miss the point of what Jesus had been teaching them? The gospel itself always confronts our idols. God has always been in that business. Do you remember the first commandment? Shall have no other gods before me. It has been God's intention from the very beginning to confront the idols in our hearts and in our life. And it's funny when we talk about idols, right? Because in Israel's history, when they talked about idols, they talked about um, gold cows, And they talked about wooden poles that were carved into images. And they talked about little silver statues and all these other things. But it's not necessarily for us what an idol is. 
And you see throughout the book of Acts, as the gospel starts in Jerusalem and moves out, idols are constantly confronted by the gospel. So we must ask ourselves, what are our heart idols? What kingdom are we attempting to build? What kingdom is Jesus attempting to build? And are we missing the point because of the idols of our heart? Let me give you two nuggets of truth before we move on. Number one, Jesus is going to build his kingdom regardless of whether we understand it or not. So don't hear me as saying we've got to get it all together and understand it for God to use this church to accomplish his purposes. He's going to accomplish his purposes whether we're on board with his purposes or not, right? Disciples missed it. And despite the fact that they missed it, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up and they start speaking in languages that they don't know that they might be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's going to do what he wants to do whether you and I are on board with it or not and whether we understand it or not. Jesus still does what he wants. The gospel's inherent power does not fluctuate with the strengths or weaknesses of its messengers, right? And that's humbling, but it's also incredibly liberating. In the end, my inability or ability to do anything, to answer objections, to do anything is not is not tied to whether the gospel moves forward as Jesus intends it to be. The potency and the power of the gospel is found in the Holy Spirit and God's work through the Holy Spirit, not in me. And even when I'm at my best, the gospel is powerful in spite of me, not because of me. Truth number two, every culture, gender, class, city, field of work, and you can go on and on there, has its own idols, and they all need to be defeated in light of the gospel. And so dare I ask, dare I even ask the question, as a body of faith, as a church, as a community that God has set apart for his purposes, in this very room, are there idols right now that need to be defeated? What are they? Is there anything in my life personally, in my family, in my church community that functions as an ultimate thing? You see, idols need to be exposed. We need to discern what they are. We need to expose them, and we need to destroy them in order, in order to not miss the point. For us to move forward as a church, to be on mission for the gospel, we need to just do that. Discern our idols, expose them, and destroy them. There are three kind of idols that I think we need to confront. I'll talk through them for a minute. I think there are personal items. I mean, personal idols, there are religious idols, and there are cultural idols that need to be defeated. What are some personal idols that you deal with? Well, one of them could be money. Jesus gave that a name, mammon. You can't serve both God and mammon. Do you worship money? Do you think about it constantly? Do you live for it? That might be an idol. might not be. might not be your idol. Here's another idol. 
romance? Do you desire and love your mate, your spouse, your significant other so much so that they mean more to you and grant you more value and identity than Jesus ever will? Maybe romance is an idol in that you constantly want to go from relationship to relationship to relationship and you can't be out of one because that's the greatest thing. Here's one that hits home for our community here at the well. Self-expression is an idol of the artistic community. I'm not an artist, so don't hear me as speaking overly harsh, but is that an idol to you? Your art, your self-expression, does that give you more identity and worth than Jesus ever will? Children, children can be idolized when we find our significance and our meaning in children and in whether or not they turn out well than in Jesus who has given us those children. Some religious idols within our culture and our church, we can have religious idols. We can idolize truth above the gospel. What I mean by that is we can fight over what doctrine we think is best and right, and we can fight over that to the end of the age without ever walking across the street and being a witness for the gospel. Morality can be an idol in the religious community. Am I, am I good? Am I right? Does that make me good before God? Culturally, what are some idols that we see? In the West, we have this idol of individualism. In other cultures, that may not be their idol. It might be family. In the West, we deal constantly with greed and materialism and all these other things. We deal with ideologies as well. Ideologies can be an idol, right? We're in the middle of a political campaign right now, and um, you can't read the newspaper or look at a news site on the web or watch TV without hearing about all the campaigns that are going on. And so as those are happening, are we idolizing an ideology? Are we worshiping that ideology above Jesus? Do we find our meaning and and purpose from those things. Those are all idols, right? They may affect you. They may not. You may have your own idols. The point is, idols get in the way. And as a church, we need to confront, expose, and destroy the idols that live amongst us. Until Until we do just those things, you have to understand something. Until we destroy the idols that occupy our heart, we are breaking God's first commandment. I just mentioned it a second ago. You shall not have any other gods before me. And until we do, we'll have divided loyalties and we will not be fully worshiping God. Instead, we will be unfaithful and adulterous members of Christ's community. You know what adultery does to a family? You know what adultery does to individuals? It destroys them. Adultery destroys marriages. It destroys kids. It destroys family. It's evil. It's bad. There's nothing good about it. And yet in the Old Testament, when God's people would stray and they would worship other idols, that's exactly what God would call them, an adulterous nation. You want some examples of that? Go home this afternoon and read Hosea chapter 4 and Jeremiah chapter 3. And the language in those chapters are so unbelievably harsh that it hurts to read 
because of what God is saying about his people. Why was God saying that about his people? Because they were worshiping idols and they were committing adultery against God. Until we discern, expose, and defeat the idols among us, that we're not fully worshiping God. We're unfaithful, adulterous members of Christ's community. And we'll be worshiping things that fall far short of our great God. Now, let me give you a warning. When you begin to confront, expose, and destroy the idols in your life, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be dangerous work, and it's going to hurt. Idols are violent. Through idols, the powers and principalities of this world, Satan and our enemies, use those things in such a way to distract us from worshiping Christ fully. Idols are violent. The powers and principalities of this world use those things to control us. And so when you start confronting them, it gets pretty crazy. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Acts chapter 19, a couple of weeks out. And there's this interesting story. I'll just go ahead and give you a heads up and you can go home and read it. There's this interesting story as Paul takes his traveling companions into Ephesus. And they begin, Ephesians, Ephesus, they begin to preach the gospel. And in Ephesus, there are certain craftspeople who make silver idols to the goddess Artemis. And they make these idols, and because Paul and his traveling companions show up and start preaching the gospel, well, business drops, and they're not selling these idols like they used to. And so things get crazy, and these craftsmen end up dragging some of Paul's companions into the middle of the city inside the auditorium. And for hours and hours, they scream and yell and chant that Artemis is great while Paul's companions are down here on the ground. And Paul is wanting to go in and speak to the auditorium. And the government officials aren't letting him. And it gets out of hand. All because the gospel showed up the worship of idols dropped off. The economy changed. People lost money. The government got all in a tizzy because the gospel showed up and it confronted the idols of a city. So let me ask you the question. What's it going to look like when we let the gospel confront our idols? What's going to change in this church body as we move forward? What's going to change outside these walls as the gospel goes forth? The point of Acts chapter 1-8 is that Jesus says the gospel is going to go forth in concentric circles until it gets out to the ends of the earth. So within our body, when we walk out these doors, when we go to our neighborhoods, when we go to our houses, we go to our schools, what's it going to look like when we confront our idols and what's it going to look like when we're witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ out there, and by being witnesses, we confront the idols of our city and our culture? What's it going to look like? I hope to goodness we don't get dragged into the middle of the civic center 
and get screamed at for a couple of hours. Actually, if we do, it could be kind of fun, right? Because Jesus is a lot bigger than anybody that can drag us into the middle of the Civic Center, and Jesus is going to win. As a matter of fact, when you confront your idols, there's going to be a fight. But the reality of it is that Jesus has already won that fight. Amen? Jesus gave his life to defeat the principalities and powers and idols of this world. Tim Keller puts it this way, Jesus defeated the idols both objectively and subjectively through his death on the cross. Objectively, punishment for our adultery and reconciliation with God were fulfilled in Jesus. Subjectively, we remember that none of our idols can die for our sins. Your spouse, your money, your kids, your ideology, your favorite government official. Our idols will always crumble under the weight of our expectations. Only by living in the power of the cross, exulting in the cross, and proclaiming the cross can we be fearless and free from the power of idols. You must learn how to take the gospel to the idols. Church, your challenge this morning, if you don't hear me say anything else, hear me say this, it's time for you to take the gospel to the idols in your life. And when you do it, it's going to get ugly, but the gospel wins. Jesus has already won. God may still choose to use this church to accomplish his purposes in the greater CSRA, whether we take the gospel to our idols or not. That's up to Jesus, not up to me. But until we defeat our idols, we're missing the point. We're being adulterous. I fear that missing the point will cause us to miss out on God's best for us. Here's reality. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already defeated our idols. So why be subject to pointless, worthless things that Jesus has already defeated? What's the point? Church, take the gospel to your idols. The gospel changes everything. Nothing is left in its wake. The gospel changes everything. Confront your idols. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder from your word that as a church, as a group of believers, as a body of faith that you set apart and promised to empower to accomplish your mission and your purposes. God, thank you for that reminder this morning that we've seen in scripture. But God, as we begin to understand what that's all about over the next few weeks, as we understand how you empower us to do that and exactly what it is you've called us to do, God, as we begin that journey in our lives over the next few weeks as a body of faith, God, I pray that even in this moment, you would reveal to us our idols. God, they exist. It's the natural inclination of our heart to worship something. And God, may it be you. May you defeat those idols. God, thank you that you already have. God, I pray that you would help us to understand what it looks like to take the gospel to our idols, that our hearts and lives and families and neighborhoods and church and city might be changed because of the confrontation between the gospel and everything else that falls far short. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.